I'm Mark Lynch. Welcome to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. Our featured book today is by Dara Conduit of Deakin University. It's The Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, which was recently published by Cambridge University Press. We'll also hear from Marwa Shalabi of the University of Wisconsin. Her article is on women in legislative committees in Arab parliaments. And finally, we'll hear from Boz Wellborn of Smith College uh, about her article, on their own, women running as independent candidates in the Middle East. Uh, welcome to our program. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined today by Marwa Shalabi. She's the author, along with Leila Alemam, of a new article in Comparative Politics, a Women in Legislative Committees in Arab Parliaments. Uh, Marwa, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark, for the invitation. It's great to be with you again to share my work. Well, so tell us about the article and uh, what what motivated you to uh, do the research and uh, to write it. So the article that we're discussing today is a part of a larger uh, multi-country project on women in Arab parliaments I, I initiated about six years ago. Uh, right now, we have one of the most comprehensive data sets on the inner dynamics and outcomes of electoral institutions under authoritarianism in MENA. And this paper I'm discussing with you is one of the outputs of this data set today. So, so the main motivation for, uh, for this paper was that like looking at women's numerical presence in MENA's parliament over the past decade, it becomes very clear that women's representation has doubled over since the onset of the Arab uprisings. So women's descriptive representation surged from about 10% to, to now to more than 20% in 2018, mainly due to constitutional amendments and expansion of quotas since the Arab uprising in many Arab states. But the question that we're interested to answer specifically in this paper is, is the question that whether this numerical increase has led to more power and influence for women in Arab parliaments. Mm -hmm. And so you decided to focus on legislative committees. Why, what what motive, motivated that choice? So legislative committees, is, it's a very, very important component of these parliaments. It has been because they give um, uh, legislators prestige, visibility, and always help them to promote their work among the constituents. It's a very, very important component of legislative process that has been extensively studied in developing, even developing democracies. But in the Middle East in particular, there is no work has ever been done on legislative committees. And that was really what motivated this paper and thinking about, okay, so, so there must be, these committees are very, very, mm -hmm. um, important and like legislators based on my field work and uh, and interviews in the region uh, MPs they, they they compete to get on these influential committees and and get this uh, work uh, done and but this at the same time we don't know any uh, we don't know anything about how do they get in how they get nominated how they get selected and what is the role of gender and all that and so you divide them up into kind of three different types of committees, and then you look and you see uh, where women get to serve. So tell us, you know, what did you find? So, so in order for, for me to understand or to answer the question that, uh, that I'm interested in, how women, did women get influence and power within these legislators? So what, what we did in this paper 
we identified four main types of committees, influential committees, and we also call them prestigious committees. These are the committees that, that give prestige to the members within the legislative body. These are kind of the finance and budget, the legislative mm -hmm. issues, the defense committees. These are the committees where there's lots of control and more, lots of funds to distribute as well. And then we have also technical and foreign affairs committees, such as agriculture, planning, um, international affairs. And we also have social issues committees that deal with sports, health, education, and youth. And last, we have the women's issues committees. So we, we, analyze, we classified committees uh, to these four main categories. And we focus in the specific paper on five countries, which are Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, Jordan, and Kuwait. And we analyzed, we collected about 4,500 different committee assignments for both males and females that were classified based on that over, over more than a decade in these five countries. And so what did you find? So, so what did we find? So it's, it's, so again, after we classified these uh, committee, these committees to these four areas, so we were what we know about what determines women's access to influential committees based on the research that that was done on this area. So there are very competing explanations about how do women access this committee. So the first first explanation focuses on self selection. So women choose to be on these on, on specific committees, especially the social committees, because it it's, it adheres more to their traditional roles and uh, their preferences. And there's other uh, explanations that focus on gender stereotyping where committee leaders or parliamentary uh, parliamentary groups, they, they tend to assign female legislators to less influential committees because they control these assignments. The third, third way to think about it is kind of marginalization theories where women are marginalized, especially when they're newcomers. Mm -hmm. And it's important here to, to, to point to something before I proceed with the findings and, and why they are important. I'm not trying, and it's not the goal of this paper to say social issues committees or women committees are not important. This is not the goal and that women shouldn't be in them or we should right. uh, think about women less um, high, like le they're not, le they're less important. But I think the point that we're trying to make is is if the women are not discriminated against and they have the choice if they wanna enter more influential committees that they're able to. And this is actually the story that I heard in many of my interviews in the region with female MPs. And so stating the fact that they're always marginalized and they're always discriminated against when it comes, even like you'll find female lawyers who have been serving in the parliament for like 10 years and still they're not able to head uh, legal committee. So, so these are kind of very typical stories that we I heard in different parliaments across the region. So again, so the goal is to understand um, to understand why they're not in these influential committees and not trying to judge what why they are in this or that committee. So, so, so this is just want to highlight mm -hmm. this point. So in order for, so for us to to understand how they get to influential committees, we we ran separate separate models based on the different committee memberships, and we controlled for the percentage of the females in the assembly, the number of years since the quota implementation, gender and affiliation and expertise, and also whether they're members of a plurality party or not. 
So the findings. So we actually found a really an interest, a set of really interesting findings, and something comes something that is consistent with what I was um, I was um, experiencing in these parliaments that actually women are marginalized from influential committees and the technical and foreign affairs committees, and they tend to be overrepresented in committees focusing on social and is women's issues committees. So looking at the data becomes very very clear that they are very, very heavily concentrated in uh, the social and the women's committees. And it's also one, one interesting finding that, we've, that, is, that sticks out is how the longer the duration of the quota system in specific parliament, the more likely women would, would actually access more influential and technical committees. So the probability almost doubles when you actually with, with 10 years of quota system, the probability of being of technical and influential committees almost doubles. And what else also was really interesting to see in our data is not only the influential committee, women's access to influential committee doubles, but also the likelihood of them getting on social committees goes down. So, so that was something that was actually uh, amazing for us to see in our data mm -hmm. and confirmed with the interviews that I did uh, over the past years. Something else that we saw was very interesting is women's political expertise. So we found that women who have, who have been reelected or he had, they have more political expertise, they actually have more, more likelihood to join influential committees. And we find that political expertise has an effect only on females and not on males. Hmm. So men are born great all the way in the Middle East, but uh, women are the ones who have to actually prove it and, and serve multiple times and show uh, expertise to actually gain more access to influential committees. What was also interesting in our, um, in our paper and, and that we did not find significant effect for ideology or party affiliations on women's committee appointments. So based like previous research always highlighted the, the issue that conservative parties or, or ideology based parties tend to put women more on social committees or women's committees because they think they, they align more with the roles. In the Middle East, we did not see that. We didn't see that the Islamists are more likely, for instance, to put women on social committees or women's committees. We did not see that. But what one, one thing I also just, I would interpret this finding with a grain of salt that also given some of the coding issues, kind of coding Islamists, and you know this very well, Mark, yeah. in the Middle East, that what, who is an Islamist and who's not, it's also tricky in places like Kuwait or in places like Jordan, we always had very hard time with our coding, how to classify uh, based on ideology and, and uh, political affiliation as well, especially in places like Jordan. So, so one other thing that we found that women who are members of plurality parties are more likely to get to technical and foreign affairs committees, but not to, not to influential and prestigious committees, even when they are part of the plurality parties. Um, the one last thing that we found is that the presence of women's issues committees, because not all parliaments in the Middle East have women's issues committees, not all of them. Some, in, in, some, in some parliaments are lumped under the social issues committees and in other places they have a standalone committee. But what we found was that when there is a freestanding women committee in, the, in parliaments, women are actually marginalized more and they tend to be pushed. So what they do is they, they fill these women's committees all with women first and then 
tell them, okay, let's talk about the rest of the positions, right? So the, actually the presence of standalone women's committees within some of these legislators actually lowers the likelihood of women being on more influential committees. So these are the main uh, findings that we have um, in this uh, paper. So um, I can talk a little bit. The, um, Sorry, Mark. No, so, I, so just to kind of like bring it back to where you began. Uh, so this, this argument about uh, what you call provisional gender stereotyping leads you to make a very strong defense of the importance of, uh, of legislative quotas for women. Um, which I know is a theme you've developed uh, elsewhere in your work. So maybe, maybe the last thing we could talk about is the how you think about uh, the role of these quota systems and um, what that might suggest for like how people think about uh, parliamentary work and elections in the Middle East. Thank you so much. So the, the provisional uh, gender stereotyping, this is a theory that I developed in, in this paper that I'm thinking about, yes, women will be marginalized, women will be uh, discriminated against when they first enter and as newcomers, there's always a backlash effect when they come in, that they, when male, they're feeling that they're losing control. Yes, this will happen. But over time, women will gain access and they will get to these positions and they will gain power within these institutions, then this is something that I refer to in the paper about how these institutions are very dynamic. These are in, in contrast to the way that we thought we used to think about parliaments and especially and, in, and institutions in the Middle East as well as a very static kind of institutions. What I'm trying to show in this paper and other projects is a dynamism of these institutions. They transform from within and women also learn the rules of the game. It's not just the parliament is transforming from within, but also women are learning the rules of the game and are able to gain uh, power and influence. So going back to your point about the quota system. So I think what I'm trying, one of the main contributions in my opinion for this paper is it provides further evidence that quota systems are important for promoting women's political empowerment, even under authoritarian regimes. So this is something that um, I, I, I deeply believe in, and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a very, very strong advocate of it. So, but also, yes, quotas are great, and they can, over time, trump inequalities. But it also highlights work like this paper, highlights the need for reforms and far-reaching reforms within these institutions when it comes to the committee membership rules and selection procedures. The, everywhere I go, I was always, I was always, always um, finding legislators telling me that the rule, these rules are not institutionalized. It's not really clear how these committees are structured, how they get elected. Some, and some, in some places and some, even every single party has its own rules. So, so it's the rules, there's a strong need to reform the rules to, and the procedures to get the nominated, to get nominated and to get access to these committees. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that what quotas are very, very important. And they do help women over time to navigate the, 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 to navigate the system and to gain more access and power. Well, great. We've been speaking with uh, Marwa Shadabi at the University of Wisconsin at Madison about her article, Women in Legislative Committees in Arab Parliaments, which she wrote with Leila Alamam, uh, also of UW-Madison, and which was recently published in the journal Comparative Politics. Uh, Marwa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I look forward to speaking to you again.
This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined now by Bojena Wellborn of Smith College. Uh, she's the author of the new article, On Their Own, Women Running as Independent Candidates in the Middle East, which is just out with Middle East Law and Governance. Um, uh, Bojena, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. So tell us about the article. Uh, what motivated you to write it, and what do you think the main contribution is? Um, again, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to this article. So to be perfectly honest, um, it was somewhat of an unexpected finding. I was working with uh, one of my students at Smith and we were just looking at a women's legislative representation across the Middle East and North Africa for a different project I was like considering. And I got the idea of having her actually start tracking how many of like, you know, current female MPs at the time across the MENA were actually affiliated with political parties and how many of them were actually independents. And what I realized pretty quickly is that there was actually quite a number of states that had women who were independents within their national legislatures. In particular, I was looking at lower houses where uh, these women were more likely to be elected rather than appointed. Now, this doesn't seem that bizarre when we think about, let's say, the Gulf Cooperation Council member states, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, we don't have political parties in that system, right? Or parties are banned. We're certainly discouraged, right? But it was interesting and striking for me to see this in other parts of the Mena, including North Africa and um, the Levant. So it got me a little bit curious as to see how uh, the region itself actually ranked relative to other parts of the world when it came to just the number of independent candidates that we saw currently as MPs. And what we found, me, myself and the students, what we found was that basically MENA had this disproportionate number of independent candidates. And there are not independent candidates and also independent actually MPs. And the data we were looking at really ranged from, um, I think we started looking at this in 2015 and the last information we compiled was for 2018 and 2019. So we still need to update it for 2020, especially these most recent mm -hmm. elections in Jordan and Egypt. But you know, this, this sort of pattern where there was just a relatively, you know, there are a lot of states that actually like had female MPs that were independent in their national legislatures, you know, really held across the last five years. And um, it really was a strikingly, a, a strikingly larger number of like, you know, kind of countries across the region itself than really anywhere else in the world. You didn't really see as many, um, in like the most other parts of the world where they were talking about Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, you know, the North Africa, the North American context, or the Asian and South Asian context, in, including like Europe, you just didn't see as many like female MPs who mm -hmm. were actually independent. Most of them were there through uh, the means of a political party, right? And so much of the conventional wisdom actually speaks to the idea that the way women actually get to political office, especially in contexts that are conservative, um, is, is, is really by being pushed forward or nominated or put on candidate lists that are party-centered. So this seems sort of like a new and interesting finding. Now, it, to, it be really very, yeah, to be very honest, we're still actually probing the implications for it, mm -hmm. right? And this, this article itself really speaks to some of the reasons why it might be the case, right? Some of this is the embrace of gender quotas across the region, right. really since like, you know, kind of 2000 onward, and also the increase in like, you know, kind of just the, the gender quota percentages, right, since the Arab Spring onward, right? A lot of new countries adopted quotas, and many of them also increased, like, you know, the percentage that they were at, the seats that they were allocating or um, 
or, or, or perhaps like, you know, uh, or added municipal level gender quotas as well to what they had in place before. Uh, the other side of this is also that you have a region that up until recently has tended to have mixed electoral systems or plurality and majoritarian leaning systems as well, which tend to favor independent candidates. But even there, it's, it's fascinating to think that women would actually be elected, right, just because of the startup costs for running an election. So those are kind of the findings. And really, the, the article itself um, more than anything is just to let everybody know that, hey, there's this really interesting phenomenon out there, right, that is, uh, seems to be specific to the Middle East and North Africa, well, not so much North Africa, but definitely the Middle East, right, and that may hint at some changes in the kinds of um, electoral politics um, that are happening, or the implications of the sort of electoral shifts that are happening in the region, and how they might, like you know, favor certain groups versus others. Uh, for me, I think the probably the next step is really exploring whether this makes a difference when it comes to agenda setting, right. uh, in particular when it comes to issues that are related to. Um, you know, sexual harassment, uh, domestic violence, and other issues specific to women. So, so you mentioned the electoral systems, but there are some of the, the countries that you look at, there's some very interesting things that, um, that were going on there. Like the way, for example, you talk about in Jordan, how smaller mm -hmm. tribes might try and game the gender quota yeah. by fielding a candidate like that. Mm -hmm. so, so talk. So talk us through like some of the uh, some of the examples that you found, and um, like where you see these uh, independent women. Where are they coming from, and uh, how are they getting elected? So a lot of this actually depends on yet again which country we're looking at, what right. the electoral system is in place, and probably another thing I should have mentioned is like how weak the party system is, right? So mm -hmm. interestingly enough, we do actually see some independence, right? And in, in, even in the North African context where you have closed lists, like, you know, kind of uh, proportional systems and where you, you actually have like parliaments that are dominated by political parties, right? And yet there are still even in some cases, we actually have a few women, both in the Tunisian and the Algerian context, which is unexpected. And I really hope to do future research on mm -hmm. that. Um, but in the Jordanian context, in the context of, let's say, Jordan and Lebanon, for example, um, where up until really like the 2016, 2016 uh, elections in, um, in Jordan and the 2018, 2018 elections in uh, Lebanon, you had these sort of plurality systems, right? There's really this push for, you know, kind of, there's a lot of identity politics in place, right? And in particular, and I, I guess identity politics probably is the best word mm -hmm. to look at, mm -hmm. to, word to use here, but really like, you know, kind of it's personalist politics, right? And particularly in the Jordanian case, it's a lot about tribe and it's a lot about like, you know, kind of uh, essentially like, you know, tribal identity and, um, you know, and, and, and in general, both men and women independent, both male, like most of the parliament itself, at any given moment is largely made up of independents rather than like, let's say political party members. And I think the most recent 2020 elections really, really play that out. In, in the case of if Jordan, the gender quota kind of incentivizes small tribes to effectively nominate women, right, for mm -hmm. um, the district that they're actually allowed to like, you know, contest, right? And so effectively guarantee them, um, guarantee the tribe itself a place at, you know, kind of, 
the table at the Majlis Nawab, right, which they otherwise wouldn't have. There's a really good article uh, by Sarah Bush and Ella Gaud that really mm-hmm. speaks to sort of the logistics and the, of, of how this happens in, in the Jordanian context, right? And, and we've seen that happen, I think, also in uh, these more recent 2020 elections as well. So some of this is, is for all practical purposes, tribes, you know, kind of selecting whatever candidate they can to effectively allow them to be represented in the parliament. And if the gender quota is what gets them there, they'll rep- they'll basically like, you know, kind of mm-hmm. effectively nominate a woman for a given candidate list, right? Now, there, there's something interesting you saw in Lebanon where you saw women, independent women coming out of civil society. Yes. So, so the Lebanese case was really fascinating because actually a lot of their candidates, right, were effectively independents. And even in the most recent Egyptian elections, right, there was a lot of, not as many, not many female independents actually like, you know, kind of wound up getting office, but there were a lot of female candidates that were actually ran as independents, right? This is the same thing in the Lebanese elections in 2018. And only one of the, can, one of the, um, one of the final MPs actually uh, wound up being um, uh, basically an independent candidate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but not an independent candidate, but an independent representative, right? Representing the Kulnawatani uh, movement. But um, but it was it was kind of fascinating to see that in this like you know slew of six women that wound up getting elected in 2018, right? You actually saw most of the candidates were actually independents. Yes, the successful candidates at the end of the day were. Um, uh, effectively, you know, kind of either affiliated with political parties or like, you know, specific blocks, but you did actually have like one candidate effectively like win office on, uh, sure, the backing of a social movement, but for all practical purposes with an independent platform, right? So, mm-hmm. so for me, what was interesting about that, even though yet again, the same legislature was dissolved, was that there was this real push from you know, these uh, social movements on the ground, like, you know, pushing for change to actually uh, first to back, like, you know, an independent candidate. And secondly, that, you know, that she would actually wind up um, getting into the legislature itself, right, with an independent identity, right, in a system that's not, that's really not known for that. And then the, uh, maybe it's not surprising that a fair number of the women are women who are very successful in business or come from a prominent family or have some kind of social capital, um, which lets them maybe get attention. Yeah, no, that's that's very true. Like we've seen we've seen some examples. So from from what I've been able to gauge in my own um, sort of informal analysis and some of the material that I actually present in the article itself is that like a lot of these women for sure have like, you know, connections to the business community um, locally. And in some cases, obviously, like, you know, kind of to have like tribal or sectarian like uh, connections that become like important for them when it comes to, you know, leveraging um, social networks to effectively guarantee turnout. But the other thing that was really fascinating was just the educational background of so many of the candidates. And I think Jordan really, really plays this out. Um, Where in this most recent parliament, but also in the last one, the 18th parliament, just like over 50% of the actual MPs, female MPs that are serving, uh, work in education, right? Um, And some, I think, uh, and also a similarly high percentage actually has PhDs, right? In general, in the Jordanian case, like more, there, are, there are more PhDs per capita among the women MPs than there are uh, among the, the men, which is, I guess, probably not surprising and also speaks to just the kind of qualifications women need. But one of the reasons why I bring up this education question is, is because for a lot of women, 
right? It's, this is a great way to effectively campaign, right? You have a built-in campaign network through the educational infrastructure that you've participated in. You do basically have a public sector background as well. And so it makes it easier for women ultimately to campaign in, let's, especially in a place where they've potentially worked right, within school administration or university administration, right, and they can, they can do this in ways that are not necessarily controversial, right, to the community at hand. Um, one of the examples that I actually cite is from Oman, and in this particular case, right, um, Nima Bosaidia actually had an education background and for all practical purposes leveraged it, you know, in her community to um, win her seat right, uh, in the last Omani parliament. And so uh, it was interesting to me to see these like, you know, kind of correlations and connections between uh, really two kinds of women like that, that wound up successfully running as independents. Women who had this education background, they could take, tap into that social network, right? A public sector network, but also just a societal network that they had already, um, you know, across multiple generations that they had already been exposed to and that had already been exposed to them. And of course, this, this situation where you actually had uh, women who worked in the business community and already had some experience in the private sector and had enough money to effectively like fund their own campaigns. Well, this is so interesting. Uh, we've been speaking with Boswellborn of Smith College about her article about independent female candidates um, in the Middle East, just published in uh, Middle East Law and Governance. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're joined today on our book segment by Dara Conduit. She's a postdoctoral fellow at, the, at Deakin University and a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. She's the author of the new book, The Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, published by Cambridge University Press. Dara, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on here. So let's just start um, with uh, you telling us a little bit about the motivation for the book. Uh, what do you think the major contribution is and what made you want to write this? So, I mean, the Brotherhood story had always fascinated me. I'd lived in Syria before the war and I'd found the, the physical erasure of the Brotherhood's presence and existence, particularly in the city of Hama, where so much of its history had taken place to be really fascinating. I mean, it was never erased from public consciousness and the regime would rec recognize its memory all the time, but the processes behind that fascinated me. And then I started writing this book just, uh, you know, a couple of years after the uprising began. And there were two main expectations of the Brotherhood. The first was that the Brotherhood was going to be the main benefactor of the uprising, you know, that it was going to inherit, inherit the new Syria. And I think part of that expectation was based on the kind of Orientalist discourse that we see across the Middle East, which thought that Islamist groups were the only alternative to these brutal secular military regimes. But the other part of it was that, you know, on at face value, the Brotherhood was best placed to inherit the uprising. Mm -hmm. It had been in exile for 30 years, but it had an institutional structure. It had formal leadership with office bearers who headed up, you know, media offices and youth offices. It had money. It had resources. It had a history of publishing and organizing and all of these kind of things. So it was the best place to, to become a major player in the uprising. And when, so when I started this book, uh, researching this book in 2013, it was clear even then that it wasn't the case. The Brotherhood wasn't doing as well as it had been expected. 
And the second expectation that uh, that struck me too was that it was going to be some sort of radical actor in the Syrian conflict. Uh, you know, by the time the conflict began, the Brotherhood was almost 70 years old. It had been, it was one of the oldest surviving of Syria's uh, political parties and had been a player in the parliamentary era. It had fielded prime ministers. It had a long period of nonviolent opposition to the Syrian regime in the 60s and 70s, and also after being forced into exile in the 80s. But every time the Brotherhood was referenced during the early conflict, it was constantly described in reference to the brief period of violence that it participated in in the late 70s and 80s, which formally lasted about maybe three years, but informally it lasted a, a, quite a bit longer. And it culminated in the Hama uprising in February 1982, in which uh, the regime ultimately besieged the city of Hama for three weeks and killed up to 30,000 people. Um, and about a thousand government troops were killed too. I'm sure we'll speak about this later. Mm -hmm. and, but So the group was depicted as this group, the group in 2011 was depicted as the same group that was in Hama. It was this dogmatic, ultra-violent group, but it didn't seem to bear any resemblance to either the Brotherhood historically or the group that had emerged on the scene. And so I started to wonder, you know, how has that spectacle of violence prevented us from understanding who the Brotherhood is and and how it's going to respond to the uprising. And so I started writing the book to try to understand why those two expectations had sort of failed to materialize and to understand what the Brotherhood's history, which was viewed as such a definitive guide to who the Brotherhood was, um, could tell us about how the Brotherhood had responded to the 2011 uprising. It was it's quite striking that up until, um, up until your book and I suppose uh, Raphael Lefevre's book, um, it was actually a quite understudied branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, certainly compared to Egypt. Yeah, I mean, after the, the Hama uprising, I think there was a sense that the group was dead. Um, you know, the violence was so spectacular and, um, you know, its destruction was seen as so definitive that it was kind of just assumed to be irrelevant. And it it wasn't, you know, the Brotherhood was forced into exile, but there were Thousands of its members were forced into exile with it. It continued to meet regularly. Uh, it continued to provide massive resources to its members. It, you know, sort of took on this mm -hmm. almost charitable arm where, it, you know, it looked after all these families of people that were forced out into exile with it. And it never, ever gave up its ambition to come back to Syria and to be a political player in Syria. And we saw that particularly. It had a really hard time after the uprising. Um, but we saw it particularly by the 2000s when it really started to, to make its case to come back to Syria again. It had a change of leadership that, you know, it was really serious about that. So it, it's quite interesting that it was ignored, you know, before Raphael wrote his book, there was no other full length book in English about the Brotherhood in the 30 years prior. It's really, yeah, it's quite exceptional. Well, so why don't we like talk about uh, some of what you found in the book then? And uh, you cover the entire uh, span of the history. But since you brought up Hama, maybe we could start there. And um, what did you find uh, about the Muslim Brotherhood's experience of the violence of Hama? And what surprised you? What, what were the things that you thought were most important about uh, what the Brotherhood encountered in Hama, why it behaved the way that it did, and you know what happened to it? So, I mean, the Hama uprising and the massacre that followed is probably one of the best known incidents in Syrian history, certainly to the outside world. 
um, and certainly to uh, you know journalists and and people that were writing after 2011, it was you know Hama was seen as the last major um, you know big challenge to the Syrian regime. But what's less known, I think, is that um, well, I think first of all, it's it's really important to acknowledge that I don't think we'll ever know what happened at Hama. Mm -hmm. There are accounts, of course, but it's become so politicized. It's very hard to get a straight as any sort of story out of the Brotherhood. I mean, the Brotherhood, uh, for the most part, most Brotherhood members, at least senior ones, tend to deny, uh, you know, any involvement or culpability for the uprising, which is, um, you know, I would say quite a revisionist take on mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. Um, but also the regime itself has weaponized the narrative on this for so long and controlled the narrative on this for so long because after Hama happened, it, it, it you know, it shut down the, the it, you know, it kept journalists out for the period of time that, that the siege was happening and, and, you know, Syria was quite a close place then as well. So it was very difficult to actually get any sort of um, accounts. So I'm not sure we'll ever know. But I did tip my, um, my best to sort of put together an account of what had yeah. happened. And I think, firstly, it's really important to acknowledge that when Hama happened in 1982, it didn't take place in a vacuum. You know, it right. took place in the back of an uprising that had been happening across the country for three years prior. You know, it wasn't this sudden explosion of violence. Um, you know, the Syrian regime under Hafez al-Assad had, had mismanaged the economy seriously in the prior decade. You know, it had um, become increasingly repressive. And so there were huge strikes and protests across the country from probably 1979 onwards, um, and as well as sporadic violence by the Brotherhood and its offshoots, a splinter group called the Fighting Vanguard had emerged out of the Brotherhood youth in the early 1970s that had used violence. Though the Brotherhood itself only really adopted it after 1979. And so these strikes had widespread support across the country. Um, you know, the professional organisations across the country in particular, you know, the lawyers' organisations and the various other bodies, um, you know, had joined and were striking. And these, these strikes and protests were particularly enormous in um, the cities of Aleppo and Hama in the country's north. Um, you know, they led to widespread, you know, shutting down of shops for weeks on end and that sort of thing. They were really, really serious. Discontent was ran really, really deep in Syria during this time. And the regime responded to this in a way that we're now accustomed to seeing through the 2011 uprising as well. You know, there were sieges, there were military occupation of neighbourhoods. They went door to door and arrested thousands of people and that sort of thing. Um, so there were a huge number of numbers of people in prison at this point and a mounting death toll from both sides. And, uh, you know, at the same time, the Brotherhood and uh, other groups were carrying out sporadic attacks of violence. Um, and some of these were really, really appalling attacks of violence um, and sectarian attacks, such as the Aleppo Artillery Massacre in 1979, which was carried out by the fighting vanguard. Um, so uh, the Hama massacre itself, it broke out on uh, the on February. That, one thing which was very interesting in your book was the discussion of the of the role of the Muslim Brotherhood in those large scale uprisings and, you know, the narrative battle uh, that was taking place in Syria about how central they actually were. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. The Brotherhood's always been seen as the sort of center of gravity in this entire process. And you know, in Hama, but also in this period beforehand. And I think in reality, it wasn't, you know, I've found, um, you know, I read 
basically every primary document I could find mm-hmm. writing this book. And there was just some fascinating material out there, particularly members of the fighting vanguard, which were much more radical than the Brotherhood. You know, the Brotherhood, right. violence never sat easily with the Brotherhood, whereas it did with the the vanguard and its members, who tended to be, um, you know, much younger than the Brotherhood's leaders. Yeah. And the Brotherhood, of course, these are like middle class, well-educated, kind of comfortable professionals for the most part. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the fighting vanguard were too, um, but you know, they, they were much more ideological than the Brotherhood ever was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some fascinating letters and that sort of thing that I found along the way, you know, of fighting Vanguard members frustrated that the Brotherhood was taking credit for for the um, for violence or that they were, um, you know, collecting donations, uh, you know, to go towards the armed effort, but were distributing only to their own. Um, Abu Musab al-Suri, who is a uh, you know, many of your listeners were known as the, uh, you know, key jihadist strategist that was later associated with Al-Qaeda, was involved in this period in um, the fighting vanguard and the Brotherhood. Uh, and he le- later wrote a seminal text about it. And mm-hmm. he complained that, you know, the Brotherhood wasn't cut out for this. The Brotherhood, you know, it decided to adopt violence and it created this, um, you know, military command. And he said it was more like the command of a financial institution than it was of, you know, of, of an uprising. Right. You know, it was full of like lawyers and this sort of thing who had no track record of, of violence. They'd never studied violence. They'd never read anything about revolutionary violence. And suddenly they were trying to carry out this violent campaign. And as a result, it was highly unsuccessful. And a complete catastrophe for the organization. It was catastrophic. And I mean, that this mismanagement um, culminated in, in the Hama uprising in February 1982. So... Um, you know, the, the regime had been successfully cracking down and was gradually picking off Brotherhood cells and fighting vanguard cells across the country. And um, Hama was particularly bad. It had always been a stronghold for the fighting vanguard. Um, and so those who were left in the town decided to rise and make their own stand, their last stand, sorry. Um, but they, they sent a message out to the Brotherhood's leadership to get permission to tell them we're going to do this. And the Brotherhood said no, well, purportedly said no, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they never, the message never came back in time. And in the meantime, these last cells were discovered by uh, by the regime. And uh, overnight, the uh, the cells rose up and declared the city liberated and took control of some of the old parts of the city. And so the regime responded to this in an incredibly brutal way and, you know, a way that at the time was, you know, one of the most brutal incidents of violence in the city, uh, sorry, in, in the Middle East in the contemporary era. Uh, and it blocked off all roads out of the city. It turned off the television, uh, the telephone lines out of the city and it basically locked all of the residents of Hama and these Brotherhood members and fighting Vanguard members in and besieged it for the following three weeks and I mean it literally if you look at um, if you go to Hama today or if you look at maps it literally flattened parts of the city in order to um, to weed out 
the Brotherhood and it, uh, you know, in the end there are up to 30,000 people killed in three weeks, which is incredibly violent, mm -hmm. and about 1,000 members of uh, 1,000 Syrian troops were killed in the process as well. There's sort of this absolute spectacular, you know, violence that's created this memory that I talk about a lot yeah. in the Brotherhood. But the way I think even more important than that is the way the Brotherhood responded, which we were alluding to mm -hmm. before. Um, I don't know when the Brotherhood's leadership found out about the uprising because it was outside the country at that point. It had been forced into exile. And as I said, there were no telephone uh, lines or that kind of thing that they could, uh, you know, that they could find out. And it took the rest of the world maybe maybe seven or eight days to find out that the uprising was taking place. And I think the Brotherhood found out in a similar time frame. They ended up finding out via truck drivers that were, were coming through Syria. And um, some Brotherhood members told me that the regime would actually send truck drivers with false information as well. So it was very difficult for them to know what to do. Right. Um, but the Brotherhood, you know, in a similar way that the the others had complained earlier that it was it was trying to you know claim claim the spoils of the previous uprising it did the same here so it decided to make the most of this and so uh you know it responded very strongly it called uh members from all over the world to baghdad where they were training in um camps provided by saddam hussein uh, and it put out, you know, enormous media releases about the uprising that was taking place all over Syria that, uh, you know, it had taken place, it had taken control of military bases and all of this kind of stuff and sort of made this huge thing that wasn't really happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so they called for further stuff across the country as well. But after three weeks of the Hama uprising, and I mean, this is probably a... Um, a completely rational response the brotherhood called the uprising off um and this obviously you know in the face of the bloodshed that was taking place in Hama, the fact that this was impossible it was impossible it was you know the regime was not going to fall it was probably a completely rational decision to make to call it all off mm -hmm. but this never went down well they had mobilized uh you know more than a thousand people in iraq and these are people, many who had left Syria, who would never be able to go back. Um, you know, they had created all of this, uh, you know, frustration, all of this um, language in Syria. They had put all of these people at risk by association with the Brotherhood. And suddenly the leadership just stopped. And I spoke to someone in the book, it was a fascinating interview, uh, where he talks about how just out of nowhere, it was it stopped. And he, he remembers looking at his battalion commander uh, in the camps. The Brotherhood leadership never came near the training camps. They stayed away. But he just looked at his commander and his commander was crying just out of this, this grief and this realisation that they, they'd never be able to go home. You know, mm -hmm. they'd never have this chance to overthrow the regime, but they also would never, ever be able to go home. Um, and so the Brotherhood's mismanagement, I guess, of the entire uprising, but also of the aftermath, where not only were, you know, all of its supporters stuck outside the country permanently, but also there were huge consequences for those left inside, right. you know, arrests and that sort of thing um, that, that made it a lot worse. And I think in the end, you know, that was the last taste that a lot of people in Syria had of the Brotherhood. That's the last memory of it and there are a lot of accounts of that too of people saying well you left you left us in mm -hmm. syria 
you know, to be yeah. arrested, to have our sons put in prison for decades afterwards. And you, you went outside and you got rich and you <laughs> went about your lives. Yeah, and then and you talk a lot in the book about uh, about how the legacy of that uh, of these catastrophic decisions end up shaping both the perceptions of the brotherhood and of how the brotherhood leaders themselves think about um, what's possible and what's desirable as they you know kind of figure out where to go next. And maybe we could we could uh, build off what you just said about them getting rich and talk a little bit about that period in exile, uh, the period after 82, but before the uprisings of 2011, uh, you know, where do they go? What do they do? And, um, you know, what happens to the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood once it becomes primarily a, uh, an exile organization? Yeah, so I mean, exile was a really difficult time for the Brotherhood, um, particularly after this militarization, because it was never fully supported by the Brotherhood's leadership. And then, um, you know, so there was always this sense of what happened, how did we stray so far from our original path, who do we blame, and that sort of thing. So it was a really, really difficult time, and the Brotherhood did splinter for a period there over that, those questions, the questions of whether they should be continuing to to violently challenge the, the regime or whether they should stop. Um, and so that was a really, really difficult time. Um and, and it's something that I talk about in 2011, that because they'd never really resolved those questions, they never really, the Brotherhood, I mean, speaking to members, you know, they still refused to take responsibility for for that, the role they played in these events and the huge toll that, um, you know, was inflicted mm -hmm. on Syrians. Um, and, and, you know, that still seems to play out. But exile also, it offered advantages to the Brotherhood that, you know, it, the other groups didn't have you know it's it's membership it was always it was it was unlike diff other groups in the region in that it was always made up of sort of the professional classes this was never a broad-based party it was never going to be and it never will be um so it was made up of lawyers it was made up of merchants and that sort of thing and so a lot of people who left syria um with the Brotherhood actually went on to forge really successful careers in countries like Saudi Arabia, um, Iraq, uh, Turkey, UK, Jordan. Um, so a lot of people went on and actually did really well. The Brotherhood supported people, I believe, too, financially to mm -hmm. to build these careers and to, um, to rebuild. Uh, obviously not everyone did well. There were large, you know, the Brotherhood still spends a lot of money on supporting families of people who didn't do well. But by the time the uprising began, the Brotherhood had people that had six, uh, had a lot of members who had significant financial resources, but also other kind of resources too. So they had, um, you know, they had spent years dealing with the Western media, for example. So the, you know, the brotherhood, one of the Brotherhood's first official um, statements was written by its leader at the time, uh, one of its leaders, uh, you know, in The Guardian. It was published in The Guardian. It understood how the international community worked. You know, they had connections in Brussels and London and D.C. And, you know, it knew how to play the international game. And that was part of a legacy of its exile, that it had been able to develop these resources and skills that, you know, most other Syrian opposition groups hadn't done. Yeah, and there's one other really interesting point that you made that, um, that there was this faction of the Brotherhood that, uh, you know, was much more radical in turn to violence. 
And uh, but you you noted, I thought it was very interesting that it actually helped the Syrian Muslim Brotherhood that a lot of those people left and went to fight in Afghanistan and they were no longer within the organization causing trouble. Yeah, I mean, it had obviously been a disastrous thing for the Brotherhood during the uprising because those members were so loud um, that in many ways, you know, they they that pushed the group to adopt violence in the first place. But then afterwards, um, many of these more radical members, the ones associated with the fighting vanguard, but also the, the more radical members in the Brotherhood itself, were so dissatisfied with the Brotherhood. And, you know, it was sort of what I was talking about with, uh, you know, the attitude from right. Habib Masab al-Suri and others, um, just disgusted with the Brotherhood. And it worked in the Brotherhood's favour because these people did want to continue their fight. And the obvious place to continue your fight then was in um, Afghanistan. And so they became a significant proportion of the Syrian cohort of the Afghan Arabs um, that fought against the Soviet Union. And many of them stayed there. So this sort of natural process of these people, I mean, these people hate the Brotherhood. And some of these people came back to Syria after 2011 you know, still right. disgusted with the Brotherhood, still hate them. But it had this impact of drawing these people away from the organization's core, and it meant that the Brotherhood could kind of rebuild without having to deal with these voices. Right. So why don't we why don't we spend uh, like the last 10 minutes or so, we can talk about uh, 2011 and after 2011 and after and kind of how these legacies shape the Brotherhood's uh, successes and failures uh, with the uprising. Okay, so I mean, I opened this book with asking, um, you know, what what does history tell us about the Brotherhood? You know, how does how much how useful is history? You know, what did history give the Brotherhood? And so, I guess in looking at the uprising, it was clear that the Brotherhood had failed to failed to become this central player in the uprising. But arguably, and I'm happy to talk about yeah. its future in a moment. Um, you know, arguably, I think it's probably in a worse position today than it was on the eve of 2011. But I think history showed that, uh, you know, in 2011, history played out in a really positive way for the Brotherhood in some ways. It endowed it with organisational tradition and resources that were far superior to any other groups. So some of that stuff that I was talking about with exile, you know, it had been living in safety, it had financial security, had space to advance new programs, and that proved a serious asset to the group. But also because it had this long history of ideological integrity, you know, and not just of speaking the language of democracy, but practicing it, you know, it had participated enthusiastically and without any issues in Syria's post-independence parliamentary era. So it didn't face any of those internal debates that many of the other Islamist groups face about, you know, is it legitimate to be participating in the secular state? And it also practiced internal democracy within its group for many decades. So, you know, you can criticize the Brotherhood for all you want. And I mean, I think I am quite critical of the group in the book. But the group had an institutional structure, regular elections, and leaders changed. So mm -hmm. maybe not as much as members its members liked, but there's this ruling, because there's a ruling clique, but nonetheless, these processes existed. So this meant that when people took to the street in Syria in 2011, and I mean, it's important to note, the Brotherhood was not one of them. The Brotherhood was in exile. Um, very, very, you know, very strong outside and very weak inside. 
very strong outside, have very little inside the country. If some of its members, um, its youth members were involved in some of the Facebook groups early on, uh, you know, in mobilizing the population, but as an organization, it was not really involved in this. Um, but nonetheless, because it had this history of talking about democracy and all of this sort of thing, it was able to really easily join this chorus of others for calling for democracy and transparency and that kind of thing. And so that really made its entrance into the uprising a lot easier. But it also had this heavy burden of history that it was carrying around. And particularly, it's the 10 years before the uprising had been disastrous for the Brotherhood as it was trying to rehabilitate itself. And it had made significant efforts to return to Syria as a political player via things like the Damascus Spring, the Damascus mm -hmm. Declaration, the National Salvation Front, and every one of these things had failed and they proved increasingly fruitless. And, brother, and the Brotherhood became more and more desperate for relevance. And it, it started to want to try to maximise any opportunity, no matter how small or incongruous. And this caused it to sell out the opposition on many occasions. You know, it bounced between the Damascus Declaration, the National Salvation Front. And in uh, this tendency culminated in 2009 during the Gaza war when the group made the fateful error of unilaterally suspending opposition to the Syrian regime totally in support of uh, the regime's support for Palestinians. And this too failed. So when the Brotherhood entered the uprising, it had this history, recent history of disastrous relationships with the Syrian opposition and a total inability to build trust with them. And so it would it joined all of the major uh, Syrian opposition groups. It was, you know, a key player in the Syrian National Council and a key player in the Syrian uh, National Coalition, which came afterwards, but it was never able to sort of build productive coalitions with other groups or anything like that because there was just never trust. It was seen as opportunistic. Its members were seen as arrogant. Um, and you'll see in the book, there's some, I thought, some quite remarkable quotes by Brotherhood members talking about how, um, you know, the opposition was just so inexperienced that, you know, they really benefited from our, you know, us being able to teach them how to, right. to operate in this kind of thing. And you can imagine that, um, you know, that kind of attitude just went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> And the major Sorry. and the major thing that they could contribute was often the fundraising. They had all this, all these relationships in in the Gulf and their own resources. But one of the things you point out is how little that seemed to actually purchase them in terms of influence on the ground. Yeah, so I think I mean it didn't have the networks on the ground left because the the regime had so successfully uprooted them. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't a highly successful group in uh, the way that it it distributed these resources. I think um, you know, I, it it was quite corrupt in the way it did it. It didn't, and it often tried to distribute resources to its own, not to those who necessarily needed it mm -hmm. the most. Um, and I think there's a there's a quote in there um, by someone complaining that they appointed a uh, head of, of of a town in. Uh, in Idlib and, uh, you know, the person had been in exile for 30 years and this this person said, I'm pretty sure that guy wouldn't have even been able to find his house and suddenly he'd been, you know, he'd been given right. this really important role. Um, yeah, there's so, a lot of, it's really interesting that, though, it, 
the, the inability to translate all those external advantages into success on the ground. I, I wanted to ask one last question, um, which is about the impact of the rise of the jihadist groups and these, com these competitors, more violent and extreme competitors within the Islamist um, domain. And, and how did the Brotherhood respond to that? And, uh, and, and how did it affect the Brotherhood's development? So, I mean, the militarization of the conflict, firstly, I mean, we talk about these resources that Brotherhood had, and it did have substantial resources. But the second that the conflict militarized, those resources became really, really small in comparison to the kind of money that was being pumped into the uprising and that would later be um, pumped into some of these jihadist groups. So this was, you know, this, this became quite stark early on. Mm -hmm. Um, but the the, milit uh, the the presence of jihadist groups was really, really challenging for the Brotherhood because firstly, as I said before, it had it never came to terms with what happened in the 1980s. So it still didn't understand why it had gone down that path. How was it vulnerable to doing that again? You know, what, what, what had happened? So that made it really difficult for it and it made it really hard. There were times during the uprising when these, particularly the jihadist groups, were taking claim um, and I guess appropriating parts of the Brotherhood's history, uh, you know, and claiming the glories of, of that violent period. And the Brotherhood, it, it put the Brotherhood in a really awkward position because the Brotherhood had had spent such a long time trying to say, well, no, no, no that's not us. We're not like that. We're, right. we're democratic. Um, and so the Brotherhood didn't really know how to respond to these groups. Uh, it did try in in a sort of haphazard way, ultimately, to join the armed uprising. Uh, but it was never particularly good at that either. I mean, as I said before, violence was never something it excelled right. at. Um, and so, it, it, you know, it really failed to bear fruit. But I think also, I mean, the Brotherhood, if you read its, its, its um, political papers and uh, any of its ideological documents, you know, its its ideology is not particularly Islamist. I mean, there, there's a quote in there by a member of the young generation who said, um, you know, you could you could just delete the word Muslim from from Muslim Brotherhood. You know, it's not a particularly ideological group, and so it, its ideology was very unsexy in compare in comparison to these other groups that were, you know, promising this, you know, had the, had this new vision for how they could solve the Syrian problem. Um, and so that that was a real problem for the Brotherhood. But I think maybe long term it may not be a problem because so many of those groups now have become so um, so damaged and were responsible for so much destruction in Syria during the conflicts that maybe the Brotherhood's decision to stay aloof from that aspect of it will, you know, help it survive in the future. I mean, I wouldn't be very upbeat about the Brotherhood's prospects. I think it's in a really bad way, but at least in the in because it wasn't involved in the in the very radical end of this uprising, it's protected by that part of criticism at least. Well, we've been speaking with Dara Conduit uh, about her new book, The Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, it's such, such an interesting and rich book. Uh, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. My pleasure.